Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore, it's another episode. And today's episode is with frontman of My Life Story, Jake Schillingford. Uh, I, I grew up listening to Jake's music and it was great to hear that My Life Story returned this year with a brand new album. Uh, so Jake was kind enough to invite me down to his studio in Brighton where we sat and had this lovely chat that you're about to hear. But before you hear it, let me just quickly thank Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network team. Uh, my producer, 76... And I think that's it for the thank yous. I can't think of anyone else I need to thank. Um, let's get straight on with this episode. Please enjoy Off the Beat and Track podcast with Mr. Jake Schillingford. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code Beat 15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk, official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. 
It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, stew with him. Okay, we're recording. We are in a little studio in Brighton. It's wonderful. <laughs> and sitting opposite me today is Mr. Jake Schillingford. Hello. How you doing? I'm very well. This this little room is used to be the um, the clearing room for all of Fatboy Slim's samples. So, oh, really? So in the yeah, um, if we just describe it to the listeners, it's a, a, a very small L-shaped room, and only really only me and Stu can fit in it. But there used to be three people in here on on the phone, um, and as soon as Fatboy Slim would put some sample from some Sowetan choir yeah. from 1948 in one of his songs, they would have to sit, three people in this room would have to sit and try and locate the original copyright holder, you know, or the, the granddaughter, the great granddaughter yeah. of that person, and then try and get the sample cleared. So that's right. the, uh, that was the, uh, the, yeah, the origins of this room, and now a, a, a recording studio. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for um, giving up your time today to have a, have a chat. Um, it's interesting to see that there's new My Life Story music coming out, mm. which we will talk about as the podcast unfolds. Um, I should say now this is this is the first time we've met. Um, I've stood in front of you countless times at My Life Story gigs, and uh, and w- there's lots of things as this podcast will unfold where the areas that you've grown up in are the same areas that I've grown up in. So I think there'll be some interesting chat on this podcast, but. We, we're just going to talk about specific streets. Uh, <laughs> yeah, do you remember the bush on the corner <laughs> of that street when, you, when we were just kids? Or yeah. Okay, all right. Track one, the song with the greatest intro, Jake. Yep. So that's uh, The Teardrop Explodes uh, and Reward. Um, do I need to say more than that? Jake, I have been waiting for someone to say this song. It's just... The urgency of that record, it's just a smack in the chops right from the off, isn't it? And it just, it's relentless. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I suppose I look at myself as a lyricist as well, and I, I just think the opening oh, lyrics, yeah. are, uh, when, pe- when you mention an intro, it's really interesting because I, I immediately started to think about lyrical, I think the opening lines of songs are so important. And I, and I thought, well, we'll go with something that actually has a lyrical, you know, bless my cotton socks, you know, a turn of phrase, bless my cotton socks, I'm in the news. This is Teardrop Explodes announcing themselves to the world in childlike, uh, with a childlike pun based on a really interesting uh, catchphrase from the, or t- turn of phrase from the English language. You can pretty much sum up Teardrop explodes with the that opening of a song. Yeah. I mean, they must have known that as well at the time, and um, you know, it's it's the fact that there's no counting. It comes straight in on the first beat of the bar. Um, bam, 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 bam. You know, um, triplets, which are a real statement. Um, I use triplets a lot in my life story records. They're very they're um, used in a lot in orchestral music. Well, what does that mean for, for a those? Triplet, well, sort of like, but so it's something that goes sort of against the beat. So bat, 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 that kind of thing. Mm. So, uh, so in, in you don't sparkle it, but um, by my life story. That's triplet. So it's got that punch. It's like yeah. a punch in the face, um, and those kind of those kind of percussive. 
that kind of percussive writing's really good. But yeah, to me, it was an announcement. It's like we're here. It's cocky. It's swaggering. Um, um, yeah, so that was uh, that was an easy one that came straight to my head. Did you get to see Teardrop Explodes, or did you see? Have you seen Julian Coe? I didn't see the famous gig um, at the Cliss Pavilion where he. I think that actually might have been Cope solo. It might have been the World Shut Your Mouth straight. No, up. that was at the toothbrush. Was that, the, that was at the toothbrush. He cut his stomach. Was that toothbrush? No, no. The the the, the oh, toothbrush okay. show. Um, well, that's we supported him at the toothbrush. Oh right, so, so that. Oh, maybe you can shed some more light on this because this is this is something that um, I, I wasn't at that show, um, but the, the rumor has it, or the story goes, that I think Cope was enjoying himself a lot around that time and was in a bit of a to do, and the story goes that the owner of the club went into the back room and Julian Cope was spangled, and he was like, right we got to get you on stage and literally put him on stage, wrapped him round his mic stand, which was the kind of crutch type. Yeah, 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 I remember it well, yeah. And then bang, off he went and he kicked straight in. And oh, That's interesting. Well, I was, we were backstage and I, I don't remember any of that. This is interesting. All I remember was he had two of those mic stands. He had a spare one. Right. And I remember looking at the soldering and thinking that's, not that I know anything about soldering, <laughs> but I really think it's very robust. <laughs> thinking, let's, let's get a hold of him. That'll hold him. Um, I love the fact you're assessing the health and safety of Julian absolutely. Cope's stage well, setup. You know, he's, 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 he's hurt himself. But that's the the when he okay. We're going to have to get some fact check checkers in. Maybe please, uh, you know, write into Stu. But I'm pretty sure that that because my my best mate's doggy, he went to see uh, he went to see. I think it was Tidro Explodes at the at the Cliss Pavilion, which is a famous one where he cuts his stomach with a mic. I think they're doing Tiny Children or they're doing one of the ballad, Great Dominions or one of the, the ballads. And, I mean, this is obviously South End legend. This is not something I've read in, you know. Um, but I think he cut... There's a famous picture of him. He's cut his stomach. Um, and I think he was on... Yeah, he was, he's pretty depressed about how he was being received. I guess because of tracks like reward and treason and then you move into you know the, the sort of softer side well shut your mouth the album um was this first solo album after that but world shut your mouth the single which was on us a, a few albums later mm -hmm. that's when we played with them at the toothbrush right yeah okay so as a songwriter um whilst we're talking about intros um Writing music now compared to writing music, say, early 90s, mid 90s, when uh, technology was very different in regards to the way that people listen to music. Mm. Um, now it feels to me, and I've had this conversation with lots of guests that, 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 that make music, um, everything has to grab you straight away. And I mean, reward being an amazing example of that. How, what, how do you approach, not so much songwriting, but that the intro? Well, the intros, intros some to, more often than not are something that I would write in the middle or towards the end of the process of the song. So it would be incredibly rare, although I wouldn't rule it out, that you write the intro, you, you, often for me, I wouldn't, start the song with the intro like someone someone writes a novel they don't write they don't start with once upon a time sure so um usually the intro is something that i will discuss 
with other writers or the musicians on the record when we decide on what kind of records it's going to be because you've got to let the song evolve through the writing process and then usually there'll come a point where you go ooh this is usually i usually think of it it's still in old terms really i think is this an is this a single is this an album track or is this a b-side i.e is this an experimental track if so then that determines the intro so the intro will obviously have to be a lot shorter and actually in in today's spotify generation uh there's no question i'd I'd love to see if someone would write maybe a paper or thesis about it but i believe that songwriting has evolved massively in the last five years since everyone's realized that you don't even though you only get 0.1 p royalty you don't actually receive any royalties unless somebody listens to your track for over 30 seconds. Is that right? Specifically on Spotify. I don't know what it's like on Apple. I think they're roughly about the same. So in order to, to you've really got to capture people's attention even quicker than you would have done. So my argument would be something like, I don't know, Beatles, Hey Jude, you know, it would probably, they probably would have put the la, 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 yeah, la, yeah, la, yeah. la, would have gone at the beginning. And actually, if you listen to songs now, particularly pop songs, you know, you, you, you actually quite often you'll find there, there might even be like a double chorus at the beginning of a song, maybe like a drop chorus where there's just, you know, people singing and there's a hand clap, but it's the chorus. And then the beat comes in, it's still the chorus again. And um, I mean, I'm a great, I, I love analysing records. You know, I love really getting under the, the, the body. I don't, you know, it's not just uh, Julian Cope's mic stand I like to analyse. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so the 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 intro for me is is dictated by what kind of, what kind what kind of use is the song going to be for because again i go like a play or something like that you know if you're if 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 it's a musical you want to have a big intro do you mean you don't want to you know you want to capture you want to get people going i suppose so yeah um so for me if it's a i would i would have a long languid intro if it's something where i wanted to create a mood and sometimes actually on my live story records in the past when we've decided the track order, I've thought, oh, we need a long, you know, the end of that song is so different from the beginning of this next song that actually I'd like a long languid intro here to just set the mood so that then the listener can readjust their emotions or their, their, where they are in the context of listening to the record. I mean, obviously a lot of that, I don't know whether that still is important now going back to the sort of way that people consume music and listen to music a lot of people now listen to music while they're you know more people now listen to music while they're doing another activity as opposed to just listening to music so um i don't know how important that is but it as a songwriter and as somebody who sees it as a craft i still do i still look at those details in terms of the listener's journey um and i think that the julian cope teardrop explodes track um in the case of reward for me was more about this is a statement of intent we are the teardrop explodes and you know within i just love the idea that within five seconds you pretty much know what you're going to get for the rest of the band's career i would say that with the greatest respect for 12 or 17 reasons i would say that's the same well thanks very very nice of you to say so um yeah, I, I guess I, I guess there's a similar principle with that. I mean, there was there was obviously with with twelve reasons why the main hook is the is the big sort of violin da 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 da, da uh, sort of slightly Russian um, hook. Um, it it only took a, a quick suggestion of you know how are we gonna how are we gonna start this song 
we're going to start it with the fastest drum roll yeah. you can imagine. You know, a two but, bar. But I film. think that impacts even harder with the orchestration beforehand. The, the, oh, the... we got well, of course. Yeah, that's the that was the single was just the drums. But mm. yes, of course, you're right. Yeah. On the album, we've got the harpsichord in. Yeah, intro. yeah, yeah. Well, that's just that's my, me and my obsessions with harpsichord. <laughs> Actually, I need to start. I keep, keep. I need to start a Spotify playlist which is songs with harpsichords on them. I must do that. We'll add that to uh, this playlist. <laughs> Track two, Jake. Um, the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Oh, Moon Shadow. Um, yeah, that one. So, I mean, my mother, um, both my mother and father uh, taught at Southend uh, College of Technology, both taught art. My mother was a, my, my father taught um, printmaking, but my mother, my mother taught fine art. I was an incredible artist. Uh, she's sadly no longer with us, but she um, very, more than my father was much more instrumental in the the sort of music that I listened to, and she had an incredible record collection. She wasn't just in she she had so some really funny things about the records that I was brought up. So my mum had all the Beatles records apart from the White Album, and for some reason she didn't like the White Album. So it was it was quite interesting. So when I was like tw- in my twenties and I left home. Listening to the White Album was like a sort of religious experience because I'd never <laughs> heard it before. Uh, that was amazing. Um, that must have felt like sort of filled a huge gap in <laughs> yeah. the Beatles. Uh. It was really weird. <laughs> ah, that's how they got there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was there always music on at home? Always music on at home. And she had, I mean, you know, the Ink Spots and so lots of early doo-wop bands. And I listened to a lot of jazz, more from my father's side. But the, the great thing of that, that I think that the, my mother's musical taste brought to me was that she was really into artists, those sort of seventies singer songwriters that really touched a nerve. So uh, Harry Nilsson, um, so Nilsson Smilson was always on the turntable, um, and and Cat Stevens and and Sir Sam Elton John tracks, um, uh, and and her real big love was James Taylor actually, and and uh, Mudslide Slim was a was another big favourite, and I, I know these are sort of quite hippie kind of artists, but um, the 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 Moon Shadow that sort of you know the the idea of sacrifice and it you know that as a small child you know if I ever lose my eyes I mean that was that's like a horror movie for a little kid to hear I mean I lyrics like that just literally cut through my whole body. I remember crying listening to that record, being kind of scared about how generous this songwriter was in in his um, his gift, you know, in, in in the way that he was opening up his heart, it, and and that was a massive influence on me. So that emotion would have been what fear? Well, a little bit of fear, but I, I was just scared. I was a kid, so I was scared by the the fact that this, you know, that this singer was was talking about losing never seeing again i mean i just remember palpably i can it's coming back to me now just being frightened that the why would that happen you know because you don't think of those things but it was then once i heard it she played records over and over again it's another thing that i got from my mother is i don't you know i i wear records out you know i do that thing where i'll just play a song to death and then i'll never play it again um and uh, that song in particular, um, you know, once I'd heard it a few more times, it just seemed to offer uh, a kind of generosity of spirit. It's just, I think it was just more the emotion of it. It was the pure, it was the, 
it, it, almost like I mean I could have put You've Got a Friend by James Taylor there as well because you know he was explained my mum explained to me that you know his girlfriend wrote him that song and, and you know it was Carol King who wrote that song and I just thought wow you know You've Got a Friend this is about friendship you know it's not about sex it's not even really about love it's about friendship and what an amazing thing to I mean that's like one of the greatest songs of all time you've got a friend I mean it really is a, a, a stunning piece of work and to give that to a songwriter of James Taylor's caliber anyway who could just not yeah. not bad himself at turning yeah. out a tune um I thought it was amazing so it's that, it's that era really that sort of um American singer songwriter sort of laying your you know the, the I think that began a journey for me of you know, and I, I like to think that my life story, some of our songs and some of our lyrics are very open. And that's from that, that got me into people like Elvis Costello, who I, I thought was a very raw and emotive singer, even though he didn't really write many love songs. He was his his emotions were very Johnny Rotten. You know, as much as I love the pistols, it, it did seem like an act sometimes, whereas with people like Costello, you know, it was like raw anger and emotion. And then from that, it, then I got into Soft Cell and Mark Armand and. And that just seemed to be, you know, somebody that was just clearly had no boundaries in terms of putting music out there. Mm. And I just think that's either blind faith or it's or it's it's a, an incredible confidence. Do you know what I mean? To show that, you know, to, to put yourself out there for criticism. Um, and yeah, I, it's just. All of those, all of those early '70s singer-songwriter artists, you know, that my mother uh, constantly played, you know, had a huge. Harry Nilsson, I mean, you know, that's another really weird one, isn't it? Harry Nilsson, "Without You," which was written by Badfinger. Well, he didn't write it, you know, but then he was an amazing writer. That sort of generosity. I mean, imagine that time of people sharing songs, and you know, love, love all that stuff. You mentioned um, that both yourself and your mum. Um, would wear out the same record mm. like when you was doing that even at a young age aside from deciphering the lyrics and 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 stuff like that was you deconstructing it musically mm, probably not so much then I, I it was more it was always lyrics so but then the so i'm trying to think of a good example um yeah, like I'd, I'd, I'd hear a record by, um, I mean, I, I really loved the, the Skids, for example, when they came out, and and all their lyrics were sort of about war, <laughs> and and I love Richard Jobs, I particularly love Stuart Adamson, but I didn't really understand. I mean, it, I, I still to this day, I, I, you know, Stuart Adamson is just an incredible guitarist, and I'm, and to try and replicate his kind of his style of writing, I'm sure it's very difficult for new members of the Skids or whatever. Um, I can imagine that's a, a, quite a task. But for me, when I was listening to those records, I was about 14, and New Wave was around. All those bands, it was, it was the lyric. I'd listen to the lyric and go, "That's an interesting story." And then I'd listen to the sort of guitar part, and the and the and the. Once I realised that, for me, the lyric was always leading. The, the well, it seemed to me in my mind that the lyric was leading was was in charge of the arrangement, the musical arrangement. Now, of course, that isn't true. Of course, it isn't true because there's many, many, many songs that are written and then people add the lyrics on afterwards. But through that um, perception, uh, incorrect perception, 
that's how I became a songwriter. So I would always write. So the way I write songs is I think of a lyric and then I write the music in. Ta- once I've got the lyric, then in tandem, the music comes in under it as a supporting role. And I think that that I believe that that's the best way to write songs because the the emotion is lifted and carried by the arrangement of the song. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Track three, Jake. The song reminds you of your time at school. Uh, right. Before I, put, I had a few doubts. Was this um, a soft sell? Is this it was. A, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, by the time I went to Southern High School for boys, um, I, didn't have, I didn't have much of a good time there, really. Um, Why was it, that? Um, well, it, it was, it, I mean, there were still teachers walking around with mortar boards on their heads. It was incredibly Victorian school. Um, uh, a big disease, the little name had just been announced, uh, with those adverts on the TV with, uh, tombstones, crush, don't die of down. ignorance, don't die of ignorance. Um, and, um, you know, I'm becoming of an age where I'm getting interested in, you know, having sex and wanting to express myself in that way. Um, all of these things, all of the, you know, Thatcher, who was ostensibly a kind of almost a Victorian type of caricature, and we're getting a few of those back in politics now. And, you know, the all of that, all of that just seemed like a complete nonsense, you know. And, you know, I, thankfully I was brought up in quite, you know, obviously, like as I've explained, my parents were artists. So I was in a fairly progressive family. Um, and... The, when when Soft Cell's second album came out, the the first album is is amazing. But it, it in South End it was like um, so nonstop erotic cabaret was like all the girls liked that record. Uh, that most blokes wouldn't admit to liking Soft Cell, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a bit gay. Of course. Uh, and in that era, just to explain some lyric li- listeners, I mean that really, I'm sure you agree, Stu. I mean there was there was that sort of it was very palpable that kind of thing, wasn't it? You sort of secretly, you know, listened to records. I sort of and I I loved I loved that first album, but when that second album came out, um, uh, the art of falling apart. I mean that was a massive life changing moment for me because it was a, it was kind of like um, again it sort of almost goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean that. Um, you know the the Mark Armand singing, you know this these sort of lyrics about the tension around a dinner table with your parents before you're about to go to school. It was literally mirroring my life, and then you know that whole album about you know going up to London and um, you know missing the train or getting your money stuck in the in the cigarette um, machine and not being able to afford to get home and. And you know, and and sex and numbers and and all and and obviously he was talking about like a gay scene and stuff like that up there, but it didn't really matter. You, you appealed to heterosexual people as well as gay people, and and the fact that he was also talking about just still being at home was amazing, really. Um, and and all set to a sort of John Barry orchestrated um, synth. Uh, huge synth backdrop and it's just there was me and my peers and all my 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 sort of then girlfriend and 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 my best friends that song just represented that that 
very it's a very short time in your life but it's such an important time in your life when you're sort of about to leave home you've not left home but you're about to leave home you're about to leave school you're about to go into the big wild world and you want to but you're also still quite scared and i think that song summed it up for me so you mentioned your friends and and and, and your girlfriend did you as victorian as you described your school did you have like-minded friends yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, we. Um, I mean, we were. I mean, we were talking um, before we went on air about about how Southend has always had a, a, a very small but effective community of of very creative people, and and it was like that then in the in the very early eighties. There was always. Um, I mean, I was very fortunate that because um, you know when my parent my parents got divorced, uh, my dad needed babysitters and so the first thing he did was he turned he turned to his students he he you know he he lectured at the college so i had a succession of of basically punk female punks um so it's 77 78 79 that three-year period, I, I had punk rockers coming around bringing those record, you know, punk records around. You know, I mean, I I was pretty cool. I was a pretty cool. That kid. must I mean, have been so exciting. <laughs> I had, yeah, I never, yeah, I was so many. I had a, I had a. I remember I'd never forget a babysitter coming around and bringing. I just bought uh, Scary Monsters and bring it round, going. I've just bought literally from Golden Disc, taking it out of the bag and going, do you mind if I put this on your record player? And I sit me sitting. That was that was my babysitting experience. Um, now, to tie that in with your question, I just think that, I think once I, when you've got an upbringing like that, I suppose I just saw, if, even if there was one kid at school that, that thought like me, then I would find them, you know, amongst the bullies and amongst the nerds and whatever you want to call them. Was you bullied then? A little bit. Um... Probably just for you know, I mean, I I do have some quiet. I mean, so here's a story for you. My my uh, as I said earlier, my father was a screen printer. This is honestly, this is all completely naive. I got I went out and bought. I think I was I was at school, so I was probably about fifteen. I went out and bought a copy of Rock and Roll Animal by Lou Reed, which is the live version of Transformer, basically. Um, and I loved the. I bought it because I loved the artwork. Um, and my dad said to me in the summer holidays, do you want to do some screen printing? And I said, yeah, and I'd like, I'd like to do this, this artwork and print it, uh, on a t-shirt. He said, that's fine. Um, <laughs> so I did a picture of Lou Reed with his, the, the famous picture where he's got his arms up above his head. And he's wearing loads of makeup. Um, and then I put the lyrics to heroin on the t-shirt. I didn't know what heroin was. Uh, the lyrics go, when the smack begins to flow, you really can't take any more. I didn't know what smack was. I, I assumed it was, I just like the words. Yeah. They're really sort of, you know, on a matopoeic, you know. And, um, you know, it just sounds like, I don't know, things hitting each other and smacks and flows. And I don't know, it just sounded good. And uh, my dad didn't really read it. Uh, and then he said, go and get a T-shirt and we'll we'll screen print it. And uh, it was a two, i never forget it, two colour, black and orange. And... Um, couldn't find a t-shirt so I got my uh my school shirt um I took this is amazing when I think about this I'm saying this to you now I took I, I took the buttons off my school shirt because I couldn't find a t-shirt and again this wasn't me being like punk it was just sort of that was I suppose it was a tiny residual thing of like well this is I mean it was probably the only white thing I had yeah so then I printed the Lou Reed thing on my shirt then I carefully 
It's the only time I've sewn buttons on anything in my life. I put the buttons back on the shirt and I went to school with a Lou Reed shirt that um, promotes heroin on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, I, th- th- there's some older kids at South and High that, that, that sought me out and actually found kind of, um, you know, took me under their wing and said, oh, you into, you know, you're into this sort of stuff. I said, yeah. And they introduced me to so many bands that I, I um, you know, in, in Southend in those days, there weren't too many um, people from other cultures, but, you know, there's a, there a black kid at school who introduced me to Scar, got me into, you know, Two-Tone and things like that. There's another kid that got me into some of the punk bands that I missed, bands like X-Ray Specs, who I, I kind of swerved for some reason and, and, and lent me his record. So, I was I was on a I was on a I mean from that point my life has never actually changed I've always just done that <laughs> yeah. listen to records with people that seem to know better than me about music I have one I have one saying in life which I stick to which is always hang around with people that are more, that are cleverer than you and that's all I've ever done and it seems to have worked Hello I've interrupted the podcast again haven't I Sorry it won't take a sec all I want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. What did you want to be at school? Uh, This is another true story. At school assembly, there was only a few of us that left at 16. I left at 16 and I was sitting next to a kid uh, who was also leaving and they asked him, what do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a comedian. They asked everybody, what do you want to do when you leave school? And he said, I want to be a comedian. And everyone laughed, thought it was really funny. So I thought, well, I'll get a laugh as well. But I said, I want to be a pop star. So it was just, you know, that was it. That was it. Well, obviously, changed. you become a pop star. I still want to be a pop star now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, track four, Jake. Um, the first song that you remember buying from a record shop. Uh, okay, so this is Oliver's Army uh, by Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Um, yep, yeah, I remember that really well. I washed some cars um, on Clevedon Road. Kids uh, don't do that anymore, do they? Washed cars, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. About 10p, 20p. Um, yeah, just went out in the street with a bucket and said, Do you want your car wash? Yeah. Get loaded. It. Done. Yeah. Two hours. Um, and um, yeah, 60p. Um, uh, picture sleeve. 60p, golden disc on South Church Road um, and cycled back and nearly got it caught in my spokes. Um, so I remember holding it out on my handlebar and that was the first record I bought with my own money prior to that the actual first single that I owned was Blockbuster by The Sweet which my mum went out and bought for me um, so and, and that's still one of my favourite records of all time do you like Glam? love it absolutely love it yeah um, Glam was like a, a th- you know that was a because I was listening to a lot of music when I was young, that was kind of like, I felt like that was the first thing that I owned that my parents didn't, if you sort of mean. So, like, they, it wasn't like they didn't like glam. 
I remember my dad being, um, uh, I remember saying to my dad, I really love the sweet um, and I, I identifying Steve Priest as my favourite. And my dad going, well, he's, you know, he's wearing, you know, he's got lots of makeup and he's, you know, and I might even my dad going, you know, I wonder what my son's going to turn out to be or some kind of freak, you know. I remember him sort of being a little... Looking at the guy from the suite in a spangly suit, wondering what Jake's going to be wearing when he gets older. So, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't take much. To... <laughs> yeah, I'll go over it all to Steve Priest. I mean, my God. I mean, I, I've, um, I don't know if you've unearthed there's some amazing stuff of them on YouTube. There's a really good um, documentary where they're followed around, like a, a sort of, you know, the biggest band in the UK. We follow them around on a tour. And they were an amazing man. What a tight outfit. Incredible rock band. So... Yeah, so that was the first one that was bought for me, and then, um, but yeah, going out and buying Armed Forces, uh, well, yeah, I've got, I, I got Armed Forces for Christmas, that Christmas, so that was that be 79, um, that was another big turning point, so I was allowed £10, £10, um, £10 a Christmas, to be spent on me over Christmas, so on any presents, my parents said, we pay you £10, and, a, and, a, and an album was three quid, so I went... Rather than have an Action Man and some Lego, I want arm. Uh, these are the three albums: Armed Forces by Elvis Costello, uh, Talk 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 by the Psychedelic Furs, and uh, the other one was uh, Gary Newman, Pleasure Principle. They're the three. Fucking hell! Yeah, they're all right, aren't they? They go to those three. <laughs> <laughs> what incredible records they are! Um, you stuck with Costello. You've been a big fan since. Oh yeah, and I mean I. I I I lived in New York. New, I lived in New York for a very short time, and and um, and I and I I met up with a few other people, friends out there who who had similar musical taste. Taste, and about three separate times, three different people over in the states have said to me roughly the same story, which is essentially this: We cannot believe, as Americans, that you don't have a sculpture, a statue of Elvis Costello in every single city. He is your Bob Dylan. What are you doing? What is the matter with your country? Mm. Why can't you embrace these people? And, you know, I know his health isn't great at the moment. And Oh, really? Know, my, yeah, my, you know, I'm hoping he's going to be all right. Um, but, yeah, I just... He just... You know, a, you just need constants in your life, don't you? And uh, Elvis Costello has always been that for me. He's... Um, you know, everything, anything that ever comes out of his mouth is, is, has been genius. When you mentioned heart on sleeve lyrics earlier in this podcast, my go-to then is blood and chocolate, I want you. I want you, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I was only playing that the other day. What? <laughs> I know. A claustrophobic, <laughs> <I know. laughs> scary, yeah. beautiful, it's everything in, well, it's what, 10 minutes, it's a long song, isn't it? And it's, absolutely wonderful that record and it's for, for a lot of people that maybe know some of the bigger hits of Elvis Costello's I'm always like go and check that out yeah you're absolutely right about about the blood and chocolate was quite a weird one really because I think by then he'd sort of settled into well this is what you know these are my fans and this is roughly what I'm going to be now I'm never really gonna it was almost like an acknowledgement so he just sort of uh, he obviously moved into lots of different styles and genres. Um, and you're right, you know, that new wave period is, is what people remember him for. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure we've all, 
and your listeners as well, we've all got that one artist that we just turn to when we just want a bit of cheering up or we want to be reminded of, of you know, great things, you know. And uh, he's always been that for me. Um, and I'm f- Oliver's Army and the album Armed, for Armed Forces, I mean, you know, it's... It's kind of everything that I like about music. It's clever wordplay. It's emotive, but it's it's the arrangements are amazing. The play and the musicianship is 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 quality musicianship. Um, and and I think that that was you know bands like you know the attractions themselves, uh, along with I would say the Pretenders and groups like that that came out of punk and and really took things to another level and 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 you know these these musicians a lot of them learned quite fast didn't they a lot you know I love punk. Um, in fact, I went to see I only went to see the the Descendants the other day, um, uh, but I love I love that original punk and and particularly the ones that learnt very quickly um their instruments and, and and were able to move on i know the the attractions were actually very competent musicians at the beginning but but the the sort of the sense of music music that was around that and and what and 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 what these these acts could do um again to to get better at music in order to make their opinions and their lyrics stand out more track 5 the song that soundtrack you're using clubland <laughs> Yeah, so no GDM by Gina X. Um, that's a tricky question because I don't really go to clubs. Um, so I was trying to think of something, that, and I—I I mean, I, I've been to—you know—I—I I worked on the door at the Camden Palace when I wrote Mornington Crescent. That's that's where that album came from. Um, and so was, was that around the time of Feet First? That was Feet First. I worked on them on a for them on a Tuesday night. They had. Um, the bouncers weren't. There was quite a few pop stars of the day weren't getting in to the club. Um, I'm trying to think of who it would have been. Um, the kind of bands like a very early Weather Prophets, Primal Screen, that sort of C86. A lot of those who weren't very well known, but were kind of known. And the Camden scene was beginning to start, and um, uh, and it, obviously Britpop was a long way off. But it was it was you know that was a scene was developing, and they the bouncers were sort of turning quite a few people away, um, and so they. I knew quite a few of those people, so they put me on the door, and it was a really good way of meeting Swedish au pairs. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and so that was sort of you know that was an indie club, but 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 I was I wanted to give you a genuine club track, and um, you know going going back to our roots, um, you know Chester's on a Tuesday night. Chester's was a a very small club that was sort of beneath the McDonald's mm-hmm. um, on South End just off south and seafront um what an amazing club um you know uh you didn't know what was going on for the dry ice um but uh for some reason that was a huge i don't know whether it was i i've no idea who else knows about that record because it wasn't i mean it was a club hit i mean i've never heard it until like yesterday when you sent the list through i was like right i need to go and have a listen to this oh you don't know that no i've never heard it that's interesting Mm. So it's one of those things where you know you're not sure. You, you, well, does it? You know, is this just us that yeah. we listen to this record? Is this a, was this a big hit in Germany? Yeah. Um, it's funny actually. It's got a sort of psychosomatic thing about it. You know, like music does. Because as soon as I uh, I played it myself, just just to remind myself, and I and immediately the odor of poppers entered my nose. <laughs> <laughs> so who's DJing at Chester's? 
Paul Tunkin DJ'd. Um, I've no idea actually who else apart from Paul. You know so Paul Tunkin then went on to set up. Paul T- Tunkin then went off to to set up Blow Up. Blow Up, yeah. Um, which so Paul and I have sort of parallel lives really. Paul was was a was was in a number of bands himself, but was really the DJ of South End, one of the main DJs uh, of alternative music. Hmm. Um, and DJ'd at the, the Pink Toothbrush, did his own nights called The Periphery, um, and was would, would DJ anywhere, really. Um, and, you know, hardworking um, and very, um, you know, forward-thinking. And, and, in fact, when I moved to London, Paul followed me, I think, a year later. And, um, you know, and then and then the whole, you know, and Paul was very, uh, like my life story, was very, very much part of that, the early Britpop scene so um blow up was a huge huge deal wasn't it it was an incredible club it's great yeah i mean i i was i was you know i, I designed their logo i was very oh, really much, yeah i designed the blow up logo um and i was yeah i was i was i never dj'd because i wanted to dance <laughs> but um, that's the best that's the best bit mate that's <laughs> the best bit and it was a label as well wasn't it He'd be... a bit later on yeah we yeah. put out the incredible Hip Teens Wear Blue Jeans by Frank Pop Ensemble, I believe it was. Right. Great right. record. Right, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, obviously, I guess you've kind of answered my next question. What did you want from clubbing? I guess it was Swedish au pairs and dancing. Yeah, once I got the Swedish. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I've never really. I, I mean, I once, once I moved to London... I did go, you know, clubbing, clubbing in South End in the early 80s was actually one of the nice things about it was again it set to this backdrop of you know don't die of ignorance and all this kind of stuff what was really lovely was was and there wasn't really many places for heterosexual people to go late of night that played good music apart from gay clubs so mm. we would go to uh sax which was um i don't think it was called sax then but it was a gay a gay oh it was called uh blue something blue um I think it might have been called Electric Blue. How amazing! That? I think it might have been uh, with a neon sign, of course. Um, and we went to, you know, we went to gay nights um, and and literally did that thing, you know, like me and my mate Stoggy would go in together as a couple, and then the girlfriends would yeah. wait five minutes around the corner and then go in as a couple. Mm. Um, and 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 no GDM, I think, it was one of those sort of early eighties gay anthems. Um, that you know, you can tell influenced a lot of those electronic bands uh, at the time. I suppose um, it'd be interesting to, to to hear what Daniel Miller from Mute Records thinks about their record because it it kind of I don't know it feels like it's in that sort of the normal you know world yeah. or you know, early synths, early dance. Um, and of course, we you know Depeche Mode up the you know, around the corner in Basildon and, and a lot of their records being played. So that was my sort of club time in south end and then when i moved to to london you know the 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 brit pop early brit pop clubs like blow up and also of course smashing which was was a big really famous one where, mm-hmm. where you know where that's where i would meet you know met pulp and blur and oasis and all those other bands um you know that was that was you know easy listening and but it was never you know that wasn't sort of disco really that was sort of almost anti-disco how was that that time um, because for, for me, as someone from Essex that was listening to My Life Story records, listening to Blur, Pulp and and Suede and seeing so many bands that it just, it sounded London to me and it was like, 
I want I want to go and experience this. Mm. And whenever we'd go to them clubs, it felt so exciting that you could look, you know, you could go in the good mixer and I was like, it's Graham Coxon over there. You know, you could see the people that were on top of the pops. Mm. And, you know, I wasn't one of them people, but just as as a bystander that was, was going and dancing, it felt so exciting. But to have been in the thick of it, how did that feel? Well, I don't think, I mean, you sort of hit the nail on the head, really. I don't, if you think of the sort of, 10 years previous to that you know with with grunge and with acid house and and with a still a, a lot of sort of novelty records frankly still in the charts um you know it just seemed like business as normal you know all the acts that came before us um in that in that what is now seen as a kind of slightly strange void period between sort of grunge and Britpop and there was a lot of great bands around that sort of era uh, bands like the Godfathers and bands like Boys Wonder and then there was you know um, you know just uh, the C86 bands I mean all of those bands would hang around in Camden and North London in those pubs um, and when Britpop came along it was so it happened so quickly that I don't think anybody really knew how to behave you know no one really knew how to behave like a rock star uh because you know rock stars you know you you know you know eddie vedder is a, is a rock star you mm. know what i mean rock stars are american rock star you know I, when, when, I mean even i mean we produce amazing front men and rock stars but all our best rock stars are ones that don't really know that they are if you sort of mean i've always said i think the last the last greatest, the last British pop star that I think was was incredible. I don't think anyone has as that. Shawnee is Jarvis Cocker. I think he's just an incredible pop star. Like he doesn't look like a what you perceive to be. He's, I guess he's the anti pop star, but that in itself, I just, I don't know. I just thought he was he was what I would deem the perfect pop star when I was growing up. I was like, yeah, that, and, and I think there was a lot of people that were like that. I think that you know, though most of us. You know, because because we were afforded so so record labels just started to sign up, you know, so many acts, and you know we we signed to we signed to EMI. I mean, we signed a really big deal to Parlophone Records. Parlophone Records is the Beatles label. I mean, what what is going on? You know, I'm in a I'm in a band that is a twelve piece band with a string quartet and a brass section, playing at the Water Rats, which is a hundred hundred and fifty capacity venue with Morrissey in the audience. And and we're getting signed by, you know, we're signing six figure deals, you know. And I mean, that's a good day, right? That wasn't a bad day. And that <laughs> the, that the honest truth that I was signing on the dole, I actually went into Swiss Cottage Dole Office and said, "I'd like to sign off the dole, please." And they said, "Why have you have you got a job?" And I said, "Yeah, I've just signed a record deal." I'm a pop star. Did it? So that was a good moment. Although I then had to go back in and sign on about three years later. <laughs> that's Britpop for you. Um, <laughs> thankfully it wasn't the same person oh brilliant alright well, we've mentioned them already so um, I'm looking forward to having a, a, a chit chat about them now the favourite song from an artist from your home county who have I put for that one you put Dreaming of Me oh yeah Buddy Pesh Mode oh yeah uh, sorry because there's so many as you can tell I can talk forever about sort of bands so uh, there were so many I could have put for that I put Dreaming of Me by Depeche Mode because you know <laughs> When was that the first single? First single, yeah. yeah. So you know, not there was a time when Depeche Mode weren't the biggest band in the world, mm. and there was a time when 
you know, they were a little pop band that wrote amazing songs mm. and were, um, and almost you sort of alluded it to yourself there, were a little uncomfortable in their skin. They're from probably the most unpopular, you know, town. I mean, you know, Basildon for, for, is a new town in, for, for those listeners that don't know. I mean, Basildon's a new town, so it was built after the war, um, much like Kirby up in the north. I mean, really, you know, no, nothing to do. Um, and for that, and, and Dave, my father taught Dave Garn at South End Tech, um, although he doesn't, again, doesn't remember much about it. But, you know, Dave Garn went to, went to the art college. Um, he was, you know, surrounded himself by like-minded people. Um, and Dreaming of Me, when that first came out, it was like this is a great. It's just a great record, and it 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 was that thing that 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 at the time in the eighties that we really needed, which was we really needed a a band that was going to produce synth music. You know, Kraftwerk are all well and good, but they didn't they didn't really. You know, Kraftwerk didn't appeal. They're, they're not emotive, so I mean, I know that's the thing. I don't. I, I don't think they had the pop sensibilities of like Depeche Mode. I think them early Mode singles were. were, were Pure pop records, weren't they? Mm, absolutely. Joyful celebration. And then it became a black celebration and it and all got it a bit darker, didn't good. it? <laughs> You're getting good at this, Jim. Um, and in a way, you know, I like, you know, it's that thing where I think Depeche Mode one day, you know, a bit like the Beatles, you know, people were like, oh, well, you know, I don't listen to anything before Revolver. It's like, well, hang on a minute, mate. You know, you need to listen to the early Beatles because the early Beatles... There's some absolutely. Just think of it as a different band, you yeah. know. Just study the study them in a different way. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have Black Celebration or um, Violator without some of those early records and the, the experimentation. That I mean, I think Torres on that, which mm -hmm. is Dave Garn composed track, which was on the first album, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, so there's a lot of you know stuff going on in behind the scenes. I thought. I thought Dreaming of Me was, should have been a monster hit right from the beginning. What a catchy song! It's amazing, Sounded great in those in in you know in the clubs in, in, in Chester's, the club we talked about. Um, and I just think that I'm I like to think of myself as very fortunate that you know I, in some ways, you know we we as fans of music like to feel like we have some kind of ownership over bands. And I know that even when my life's true, when we started to have some success, I know that some of our fans really didn't like it. They, they didn't want, they wanted my, they wanted us to have success, but they also didn't want bands. You know, as fans, we don't want bands to sort of, you know, forget us, I think in some ways. I think it's that. And I also think as, as, as a fan, I think you sometimes, if you, really love something that you feel not everybody knows about it makes it that much more special oh, doesn't yeah. it it's like it's your little secret love and like and then all of a sudden everybody knows about it it's you know and then that that's what spurns them kind of yeah well i liked them before that album and but i, I think like I, I don't necessarily think they begrudge success but i feel that they think that maybe they're they're losing that connection which you said you know the band might not want to know them anymore and and things like that i just like to think that they still would have put all those records out whether the, you know irrespective of the fact yeah. that they're doing two nights at you know the olympic stadium in, yeah. in Ber berlin yeah i mean you know and and uh, it's just uh, you know people talk about liverpool and manchester and and you know you know where where i'm from we've not really 
you know, there's never really been a scene as such. Um, but I'm very proud of Depeche Mode um, and, and what they've produced. And I think that under the radar... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You've got one of the greatest front men of the, that's ever this country's ever produced. I think he's the greatest front man. Yeah, and and one of the greatest ever songwriters. And I don't know whether when Martin Gore will be recognised for his songwriting skills, but I don't think it will be long. I think one day when people will see his canon of work, they'll realise. And again, I, it seems to be a, a little bit of a theme to this podcast. But again, Martin Gore's strength is in his ability to emote you know the emotion in those songs is so but they're, they're, unlike Costello where it's almost like an angry vitriolic emotion it's so delicate it's somebody so, as a single yeah like Martin God it's just beautiful and it's it's so hard on the sleeve and I've said it to, so many times on this podcast because I've, I've interviewed lots of people that are from Essex and right. and if they don't choose a prodigy they choose Depeche Mode and and I, I don't think that band gets the respect that they're due. I think, obviously, their ticket sales are testament to the fact that people adore this band. And they're still, I think it was, it was either last year or the year before, they were the biggest selling live band in America. Right. I mean, that's insane. And, you know, more tickets than like Ed Sheeran and Adele and things like that. It's Depeche Mode. It's this band from Basildon. And... You see all of these things. Not that I necessarily think there's a lot of credibility in getting a lifetime achievement award from the Brit Awards. That band never, ever gets picked up on. No, Live, Live Aid was the, the really interesting one. They didn't get asked to do Live Aid, or they refused. I'm not entirely what yeah. the story was behind that, but obviously them not being on Live Aid pretty much sent them on a path, um, and that was it, really. They were never going to... But that, in a way, that stood them in good stead, because they, they've just... You know, the, the mere fact that, you know, that... The, 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 that Martin Gore wasn't even really the principal songwriter in the band at the beginning. The mere, you know, then the, then you get the other things, you know, um, 
you know, Alan Wilder is, and I'm fortunate enough to to say that you know we're, we're friends, and and you know Alan Wilder's arrangements, you know, the 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 for me, and then even you've got someone like Fletch, who you know is not a great musician, um, but. You know, it's almost like a it's like a sports team. You need to have the right personalities yep. to make everybody work. And as I understand it, you know, Fletcher's is very much in the sort of management, the day to day, making mm-hmm. sure that the band are, p- are consistently putting out the right message or the right songs or whatever. And it's that balance of a band. When you're in a band, you really need to operate, you know, efficiently in or, across the whole spectrum you know whether it's dealing with the media or writing songs or producing records or being up to date all of those things obviously something that madonna's really really good at doing for a band of kids that all went to school you know just down the road from where you and i were born it's i just find that amazing and i'd like all i can really say is that i'm just really humbled and pleased to to have watched a band grow throughout my whole life ever since i was a little kid buying dreaming of me on a seven inch single and seeing what they are now. And I go to Germany quite a lot, and I'll, I'll always try and catch a, a Depeche Mode gig in Germany or, or over in Eastern Europe. And, you know, I actually disagree with your point, actually. I mean, if you go to Germany, they really do know, they get Depeche Mode. Mm. Yeah, of course. I, I don't, I just don't think, they again, it's almost like my, my, my comment earlier about Elvis Costello, I don't, I'm not quite sure how, you know, what the Brits think, you know, why would, I don't know whether they don't embrace it as much, but you go, you know, I'm just very, very proud when I get on the, you know, the underground in, in Berlin, going to a Depeche Mode concert and just seeing hundreds of thousands of people singing People of People or, you know, whatever, you know, going up to some massive stadium and just thinking they're, they're from where I'm from. This is it's astonishing. Um, and uh, the next Depeche Mode gig, me and my friend, uh, Hobbit, who's from South and High from Girl, for Girls, she went South and High for Girls. We're gonna ha- we're gonna make an Essex banner and we're gonna bring it to a Depeche Mode gig. <laughs> Do it and tell them to come back and play the toothbrush again. <laughs> um, yeah, amazing. I, I, the, the greatest show I've, I've ever seen. I, I saw um, Depeche Mode. At Did Crystal... you see them at Crocs when it was before? No, seeing Crocs was no, before toothbrush. No, no, I'd love to. This this in the documentary made about the toothbrush. We've got footage of them that was from. Danny Baker come down and done a, mm. a six o'clock show or something like that, and there's there's footage of him doing New Life uh, in the toothbrush, and it's uh, it's on YouTube. It's, it's it's great to watch, but I did see them. I've seen them a lot, but I saw them um, on the devotional tour at Crystal Palace um, Sports Ground, and I, I gather it was at the time probably at the height of Dave Garn's sort of substance abuse. Yeah, and, that would have been then. Yeah, but I saw the pop star become a rock god yeah and yeah. the long hair the shirt off the the high kicks with the mic stand and the, the it just incredible and i watched that gig on youtube at least once a month i i think it's for me as much as i grew up a pop kid and i love 80s pop music I just think that point there, and I know everybody loves Violator. For me, Devotion, Songs of Devotion, I think is is their crowning glory. Ooh, I really do. Gets dark there. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. Uh, uh, Martin Gore tried to get off with Lisa, my brother's girlfriend, in the pink toothbrush once. Really? Yeah, and me and my brother... Me and my brother, he he went up to Lisa and um and and offered to buy a drink, and my brother Luke was like, oh, Martin Gore's trying to chat with my girlfriend, and I, and I was like, just give it ten minutes, just just see what happens, you know. Yeah. And we just let him just chat her up a little bit, and then we then then we went in there. Oi, mate, what are you doing? 
to Martin and goes, oh, sorry. Brilliant, so, brilliant. Yeah, that's, our, that's my moment of fame. <laughs> I don't know, Jake. You, you was pretty good with a mic stand and a high kick. Yeah. <laughs> Last track. So um, this is when uh, you play DJ and you can influence and, and tell people to uh, go and check out something that they may not know. And that is the song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Yeah, this is, um, um, I live in Brighton now and, um, you know, I'm always looking out for, you know, up and coming talent. And uh, there's a band uh, out of Brighton called Youth Sector. Um, they've been going for about a year and a half now. Um, and they're, they're definitely, the. I mean, Brighton, we're, we're very lucky down here. There, is, there are so many venues. Um, in, in fact, there's probably too many. Um, you know, every night of the week, there's two or three gigs going on. People are sport for choice. Obviously, we have the Great Escape Festival. We have Pride, which happened just last weekend. There are so many things that are happening. And it's actually, in, in a sort of strange, ironic way, it's quite hard to get out of Brighton, in a way, as a young band, and try and break through. Because, frankly, it's quite you can you can be quite big in Brighton and 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 a lot of people think you're amazing and it sort of rubs your ego a little bit and, and get then caught you, up in it and you get caught up in it and the next thing you know the band has split up and you, you, they've never really no one ever really knows who they are mm. and there, there's a strange it's a bit of a Bermuda triangle mm. down here mm. really and, and and obviously a lot of bands come down here they're not from Brighton they're from other parts yeah. where they come down here obviously we've got the universities and and so um, but they're doing really well, and 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 their frontman Nick is has has really grown into a frontman. Uh, their reference points are, are are all of similar bands that we've been talking. They're really big into actually. He's a big Costello fan. There's a bit of Devo in there. Um, you know, these are kids who who have have plundered deep. You know, in 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 people's record collections. And it's it's fresh. Um, it's a bit angular. It's a, there's some interesting lyrics in there in terms of phrases. He's a great songwriter, and they're a really tight band, and they're they're good good friends as well. And it it's nice to see, you know, an actual band. I know that you know in this day and age, there's no coincidence. You mentioned Ed Sheeran and Adele being you know big grossing box office acts. These are these are solo artists that can you know back in the day could jump in the back of a Nissan Micra and do a show, mm. and and you know to be a five piece band now and go out there and play with you know a drum kit and a bass and a backline and amps and all the other things, that is not easy to do without any kind of financial support and not be wealthy, be from a you know an average you know working class or middle class background and that's why you don't see these bands around anymore because it's it, the, the the numbers don't add up that's why we you know over over the last 10 years you've you've had the sort of ting tings and the and the black keys or the white stripes or whatever you know it's 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 an economy it's you know can we get these in a car can we go out and do the the festivals you know how can we keep this economical and um you know, youth sector are a traditional five-piece band. You know, and they sonically sound amazing. So, uh, you know, listen to their tracks and please try and catch them. Uh, at a, they're, they're, play, they're starting to play London now, so I'm sure that anybody listens to your podcast can check them out. Well, we can. You can go and listen to them on the Spotify playlist. I should say that first, and and also um, if you want to catch them live, November the second is in Assembly Hall. Oh yeah, my life story. Yeah, don't go and see youth sector. Come and see my life story. <laughs> <laughs> new music. Yes, yeah, so uh, a new my life story album coming out uh, on the sixth of September. It's called World Citizen. 
and it's our first album for 19 years. Can't wait to hear it. Thank you. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, thank you so much for doing this. Thank it's you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, thank Jake. you very much. Cheers. There you have it. Another episode done. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, that was the wonderful Jake Shillingford, and he scrapped that 176. I'm going to do that again. There you go. Another episode done. Thanks ever so much for listening. It was a lot of fun chatting to Jake. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did recording it. I guess I will see you next time. If you haven't already had a look, why not head over to podbiblemag.com, which is the magazine brought to you by myself. Um, my name is Adu. He's the guy that does all the Off the Beaten Track podcast artwork. And Mr. Scroobius Pip, don't need to tell you about him. I'm sure you're well aware who he is. And uh, yeah, we put out this bi-monthly magazine, which is the Essential Guide to Podcasts, and you can read it online at the uh, email ad- at the uh, website address I mentioned at the beginning of this. And if you're lucky enough, head up to London or Brighton or Margate and pick up a print copy. I'm done, and I'm out of here. www.podbiblemag.com. See you next time, guys. Bye bye. Oh yeah, sorry, I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, Um, There's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.